Decent shelter, amenities such as electricity, fresh water, sanitation, access to affordable transportation, good education and books, radio and television, which open us up to the world around. These nourish our bodies, minds and spirits. For that, poverty must be fought, disease and illiteracy removed, and everyone must be given a chance to grow better, feel no love, think clearly and act right. Humans must free themselves from the iron laws of necessity. It is for nothing that in India, Saraswati, the goddess of learning, and Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth, are both equally revered and worshipped. Here I must refer to a common misperception about the process of material and scientific modernization. Though not all the votaries of this process, but certainly some sections do equate modernization with westernization in terms of cultural norms. This is a big mistake. It repels those people who are religiously inclined or deeply conscious of their own cultures from exploring the benefits of this process. Even in terms of plain reality, this equation is incorrect. Surely, it is very much possible, and indeed this is how it should be, to benefit from the fruits of modernization without submerging our cultural identity in it. We must be ready to explore ways to genuine accommodation of modernization with our culture and moral principles. The experience of some Asian societies, like those of Japan and Turkey, provide an example of how people can successfully cope with the exigencies of modern times without compromising on their culture. The opponents of modernization often attack it to the ground that it puts too great a stress on material well-being, and to that extent it leads to a loosening of integrative values. Partly, this argument is a self-serving justification for maintaining the status quo. We owe it to our people to build a society in which mothers need no longer fear for the future of their children, in which hunger and disease become attributes of the past, and in which all people live together in genuine peace and turn their energies to tasks of construction on modern lines. To improve the material side of life, we cannot let our national economy remain half-made, with many in our society enduring horrendous sufferings. There lies an urgent men to create themselves anew. The question then is, what path to material well-being should we tread today? Should we, in the face of globalizing world economy, retreat further into economic isolationism? Can we now afford to become economic sudeshis? and continue to insist on the virtues of self-sufficiency? Or should we join the road that will integrate us with a global economy in keeping with our ancient philosophical tradition of looking at the universe as one family of Vasudeva Kutumbaka? We are all aware, more or less, of the nature of the economic reforms program that India has embarked upon for the past three years. I do not want to rehearse those details for you. Clearly, though, it is a program that rejects economic sadeshism and old-fashioned concepts 
of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. In the struggle for independence, the insistence on political and economic sudeshi was right. We had to dramatize our dissatisfaction with colonial rule. We had to hurt imperialism where it would hurt it most. And we had to proclaim our confidence in ourselves, in ruling ourselves and producing for ourselves. After independence, economic sudeshi was translated into a, prog a program of self-sufficiency and self-reliance, built on minimizing our imports and producing as much for ourselves as possible. This was necessary too, to consolidate our political independence and to lay the basis for a more egalitarian and sophisticated economy. Today, self-sufficiency and self-reliance have come to mean self-limitation. In the new economic environment, most countries have realized that self-reliance and self-sufficiency come not from self-limiting insulatory, but from an economic strength built on a dynamic relationship with other elements in the world. We, too, must realize this, but that would require determined effort to revise old ways of thinking, since self-limitation governs not only our economic thinking, it seems to have penetrated the very socio-cultural psyche of our people, an affliction that cuts across communal boundaries. It imposes a reluctance to venture out to know, understand, appreciate, interact with, and learn from people belonging to different cultures and countries. It's true that we have achieved and consolidated our political independence, and we have an economic system that is sophisticated enough to catapult us into high rates of growth as high as 7 to 8%. And yet, what is probably more significant and which would actually propel the political and economic development further is that in the domain of culture or psychology too, we need to break out of this self-imposed mental barrier so as to meet people of different societies in the world around with confidence. Bapu was right when he put it so beautifully. He said, I do not want my house to be walled on all sides and my windows to be stuffed. I want the cultures of all lands to be blown about my house as freely as possible, but I refuse to be blown off my feet by any of them. What we need then is not just the economic growth in technical terms, but evolution of a socio-economic culture itself that sustains and drives the growth further. Indeed, in India today, we need a second wave of reforms to hit the higher growth path. I do not wish to go into the nature of those reforms, but they will open us up to the world economy further. What I do want to talk about here is a related but deeper problem. The government has laid the basis for an opening up and for a rapid growth. I think we can be confident that whoever is in power in India will have to stick with this process in its essentials. But what no government can do easily is to change our economic culture. That is, our basic orientations, expectations, styles, and preferences with respect to trade, finance, and production. And yet a change in our economic culture is necessary if the reforms have to strike roots and deliver what they promise. 
Without that glue, life for billions will remain desolate and unhappy, and prospect of good life would recede further. We need no less than a revolution in the way we see ourselves and our involvement with the world. We must quickly come to grip with ourselves and with the new economic cosmopolitanism, for time is not on our side. Too much of our identity is based on outmoded concepts. Our dated self-images are still related to a colonial era, which is no more. We need to put those times and what they represent behind us without at the same time becoming self-defeatist. There is no divine law that says that mindsets cannot be changed. We have to accept the new global challenges and not shrink from the contest. The bolder and the stronger will ultimately prevail. We must also remember that the socio-economic grievances and the consequent conflict and violence are bred in a stagnant economy where ever-increasing ever increasing number of people fight for ever-declining share of economic benefits entertain unjust benefits where economy remains a zero-sum game. One must not, however, entertain unjustifiably high expectations from the process of economic growth per se, and should conceive it in a proper perspective. Though growth is highly desirable, indeed absolutely essential, it is not on its own a sufficient condition to solve all the social ills afflicting our society. A nation does not live by GDP alone. The first step, as a famous contemporary economist has said, is to seek a new concept of development, to create a model of development which enhances human life, not marginalizes it, which treats GNP growth as means, not an end, which distributes income equitably, not concentrated, which replenishes natural resources for future generations, not destroy them, which encourages grassroots participation of people in the events and process that shape their lives. For people, the purpose of development must be to increase their options, to equalize their opportunities, to enable them to enter the market competition on an equal footing. He further said that no newborn child should be denied developmental opportunities merely because that child happens to be born in the wrong class or in the wrong community or to be in the wrong sex. This is the real essence of material well-being and the bedrock of the good society. Now I come to the third element of a good society that is justice and equality. The benefits accruing from socio-economic advancement can easily be wasted away in an unjust and inequitous society. In fact, in a society in which certain sections are perennially put at a disadvantage due to their identification with a particular grouping, say a religious community or caste, such an advancement is likely to further accentuate social and economic justice. Something of this kind, unfortunately, seems to be happening currently in our country. And unless we take some very drastic steps without delay to redress those injustices, one is likely to witness an increasing trend towards conflict and violence, which would tear apart the very fabric of our society. 
In large measure, this injustice is a historical legacy. The overwhelming majority of our society has remained defined and shackled with a rigid caste structure, an arrangement which has spelled religiously sanctioned inferiority, social oppression, and economic deprivation for certain castes. It is the perception of these deprived sections of the society that needs to be addressed and redressed. Undoubtedly, this deprivation today manifests in almost all walks of their day-to-day -day lives. But if one were to point out the factor that has been most glaring symbol of this repression, then there could be little doubt that it is their experience with certain coercive organs of the Indian state, particularly in the realm of law and order and criminal justice, that has pushed them to the brink of rebellion. There is a great and urgent need to reform our criminal justice system and law and order administration and encourage a greater recruitment and representation of these groups into such services which would, as a first step, go a long way in winning their confidence and trust as equal citizens of India. One of the strongest compulsions in our culture is the achievement of the status. To gain position in imitation of those who have the highest status in the society. For in a prestige system, one who is in the lowest rung of the ladder is not loved and becomes an object of either contempt or ridicule or indifference. The Indian state today, Indian carries, indeed carries the prime responsibility in this regard. No amount of effort on creating national unity and cohesion will materialize as long as people continue to perceive themselves as victims of systematic and systemic injustice and repression, which forces them to find solace only within their socio-religious or caste identity. It is the responsibility of the state to look into the cases of the violation of the very basic human and fundamental rights which is being perpetuated. No effort should be spared and no method left untried in this regard. This will be decisive in determining the extent to which ordinary Indians feel secure and confident to become part of the national mainstream, we no longer have the option of turning our back on it. In this regard, there remains a convincing case for taking a few definitive steps in the direction of helping those sections of society which are economically handicapped and unable to participate in social and economic activities on an equal footing. What are these steps? First of all, education. This is in keeping with the new thinking on economic development, which stresses primary education in particular, but which is not unmindful of a reformed secondary and higher education system. Second, empowerment at the local level. This is being addressed by the Panchayati Raj registration, which seeks to increase the scope of citizen participation. Third, economic growth will flow out of the current economic reforms and which will increase the size of the economic pie. Economic growth will change our society. Those who invest and produce in the end do not care where the profits come from. Who has buying power and who works in their factories? Indeed, they positively benefit from a mobile laboring class, not constrained by caste, religion, language or region. And if growth is sustained and of a high enough rate, 
everyone will be prepared to live with a more equitable redistribution of the economic pie. I must, however, stress that the strategy of helping socially unprivileged groups, though an absolute necessary necessity, nevertheless constitutes only a short-term step. In the long run, what we actually need is nothing short of the transformation of our society itself in the way people perceive themselves as social beings, and the way they relate to others who belong to different religions, castes, genders, and social groups. The major religious community in India carries the main burden in this context. And one can, in fact, forcefully argue for a case <clears throat> of the reform of Hindu society itself. Socioeconomic upliftment of lower and backward caste is just one step in this direction. What is probably of greater significance is the change in the attitude of the upper classes in India. All right-minded higher caste people must ask themselves some hard questions. If one really believes in God, and if one believes that all individuals are sparked of fragments of the divine fire, why is it that we have introduced hierarchical distinctions of caste and outcaste and imposed so many disabilities on them. Swami Vivekananda said, you have long suppressed these forbearing masses. Now is the time for retribution. Millions of people who have suffered the slings and arrows of prejudice and ruthless misfortune have to be given compassion, dignity, and most importantly, hope. As a matter of fact, the problem related to caste is not confined to just lower versus upper caste. Even within higher castes, one experiences a form of discrimination based on hierarchy. Hence, what we actually need is not just the improvement in the relationship between the lower and the upper castes, but a reformation, but a reformation of the whole system of castes itself. A man is entitled to salvation by virtue of his individuality and humanity. Every human being, man or woman, high caste or low caste, is entitled to salvation, says, says Samakra Acharya, and he was one of the great advocates of social progress and condemned ceremonials. Vedanta Deshika tells us, even if the dog-eater, if he has love of God in him, is as good as the highest in the land. Commenting on this state of casteism, Tagore has said that though it has to be admitted that in the medieval age, that Brahman Ramananda was the first to give the cry of unity, which is India's own, and in consequence lost his honored privilege as a Brahman guru. Yet it is no less true that most of our great saints of that time took up this cry in their life, in their teachings, in their songs. Moreover, some came from the lower classes, one of them being a Mohammedan weaver, one a cobbler, and several coming from the ranks of society whose touch would pollute the drinking water of the respectable sections of Indians. And thus, the living voice of India ever found its medium even in the darkest days of her downfall, the voice which proclaimed that he only knows truth who knows the unity of all beings in this spread. I therefore would urge a long-term commitment to reforming the society. After a long spiritual slumber, India did wake up to a renaissance triggered by such eminent reformers like Raja Ram Mohan Roy, 
Dayanand, Vivekananda, and Mahatma Gandhi. The essentials of the reform formed part of her freedom struggle and were later incorporated in the Constitution. But the reality is that the old mold of Indian society has now started cracking up. Due to turbulence generated from within on account of investments made in its economy, polity, and education. India cannot respond to this development by a retreat, which will make India's distress unbearable and its people archaic. We must abolish distinctions of caste and class so as to coalesce into a community which is united and provides equality of opportunity to all. And what is true of Hindu community is true of other communities too. We need reforms in other religious communities as much as we do in Hindu society, that not only Hindu but Indian society as a whole moves forward. The dilemma faced by the Muslim community has been deeply painful and unremittingly grim. Every effort must be made by that community to develop a dynamic and modern leadership that will prepare it not merely to react to others, but to reflect upon itself internally as well. And then through this process of internal reform and self-renewal to gain a sense of confidence and urgency and to participate energetically in the social and economic life of the country. Muslims should rid their social life of wrong concepts relating to marriage, meher, and divorce, and to replace them with ideals which are consistent with the true spirit of religion and in harmony with the practices of others in this country. To let the Muslim community languish in their ways would be to impoverish the future and future of India. These interests and values require vigilance and effort if we are to survive as a just nation. The task of a statesmanship is to shape events in the crucible of justice and equality for all castes, communities, and genders, even when consensus and certitude are often unattainable. Attempts must be made to achieve this because this is an indispensable must for good life and for a good society. Now I come to the fourth element of good society relating to community life. There can be no worthwhile and truly human life this without community radio, uh, life. Human life is premised on community and the attributes of community, that is language, custom, food, dress, art, literature, etc., are important. Community, however, has become another isolationist slogan, a slogan of cultural isolationism. It stands for that entity or those reference points which you cannot choose, which are defined for you from birth, which you must defend from rivals. Community should be a joyous, inclusive, and dynamic social grouping. More and more, though, community has become the opposite of these attributes. There are those who would instead make community stern, exclusive, closed, and unchanging. Community is something we make in our imagination and through our actions and words. There are forces in India, on the other hand, that would make communities stand outside us as an alienated thing, a check on us or others, a structure to be feared. From the point of view of the good life, we should, I suggest, talk not of life in community, but of life in communities. Modern life is complex. We are engaged in different professions. We are more mobile. We move between villages, the small towns, big cities, states, and even countries. 
we come into contact with and are influenced by people from all walks of life, from all kinds of communities. Urban life especially throws us into a cultural affinity. Few of us would give this up. Even those who would draw rings around their communities and segregate them from others and strive to maintain their purity seldom move to villages or to start homogeneous communities in the country cut off from everyone else. The point is that we are simultaneously part of several communities and we move in and out of these throughout our lives and our lives are made richer by this movement and contact. They practiced, if not, Indians understood this a very long time ago. They practiced, if not conceptualized community so that it is inclusive and available at various levels with concentric circles of loyalties and affections. This baffles outsiders, especially Westerners, who are now dealing with the demand of multiculturalism in their own societies. We have been multiculturalist a long time and less self-consciously too. Today, with satellite televisions, with worldwide computer linkages, in networks such as email, with instant communications on fax machines, any attempt to enclose our notion of community seems doomed to failure. To do so would not only be unsuccessful, but if it succeeded, would render as anthropological curiosities for tourists and social scientists. The watchword of today's world is plasticity, elasticity. A good plastic, a good brand of elastic, has an inner resilience and integrity, but it can bend and stretch without breaking apart. Our communities must have an inner resilience and integrity, a sense of what their core values and practices are, but they must be willing and able to bend and stretch to accommodate new values and practices, or else they risk breaking apart. May I now turn to the fifth and another important attribute of a good society, that is rationality. Dogmatic thinking and abdication of reason in their innumerable forms remain one of the great obstacles to human advancement and condemn the majority of people to dark dungeons of suffering, misery, and ignorance. All human progress is based on reason. By reason, I do not mean necessarily some arid concept equated with narrow intellectualism but rather the application of systematic thinking regarding the facts of this world as they are in order to achieve the objectives and ends which deem to be worthy and good. But reason is not simply a technical instrument which allows you to attain objectives and ends more efficiently than otherwise. It is not purely instrumental but normative as well. Reason has a role in defining our objectives and ends Reason can help us decide which objective and ends are correct and attainable and which are not. That reason and norm should be braided together in this way is a point of the profoundest significance. The point has always been the essence of humanist thinking. It is particularly important for us today because it is such a notion of reason which will connect our great spiritual traditions with our material and economic progress. When we understand that norms and morality have integral links, both with our spiritual side as well as our instrumental and material side, there will no longer be the temptation to think of these two sides as warring against each other in ourselves or in our historical tradition. 
Reason, in fact, and contrary to the general perception, has played a very crucial role in our understanding of our belief systems and theologies. In Yoga Vasistha, we find the great teacher instructing Ram, the mark of even a child is to be accepted, he said, if it is in accordance with reason, but the mark of even Brahma himself, the creator of the world, is to be rejected like a piece of a straw if it does not accord with reason. Bhagavad Gita recognizes that nothing can give man fulfillment unless it satisfies his reason, his ethical conscience. More than all, it must be personally experienced. No man who does not doubt or raise question is truly alive. Indeed, all knowledge and reason, reason begin with a question mark. Arjuna stood before Krishna and encountered him with his doubts and questions, and through dialogue and reason, grasped the supreme reality. Draupati cried out in distress, I do not have my husband here, not even you, O God. You have all deserted me. I stand alone in the nakedness of my loneliness and my utter dependence. It is at this moment that the world passes through a great conflict and seeks anchorage and insight into the truth of things. Here is a rational survey and scientific understanding of experience. Here is no dogma, no authority. It does not say that one should accept it because it is said by so and so. As the Buddha said, do not accept my words out of regard for me. Accept them after testing them by logic and putting them to the test of life. Then it is that you should discover whether there is an absolute reality in the world or not. Swami Dayanand Saraswati was one who was guided by the supremacy of reason, and he made out that the Vedic scriptures never asked to take anything on trust but to examine everything and then to come to any kind of conclusion. He said that when we are called upon to practice the past, we are called upon to practice our reason, our reflection, and judge them by our capacity to conform to laws of reason and thought. Likewise, great Muslim thinkers of medieval era, like Ibn Rushd, and in fact the entire intellectual movement is started by him, epitomize the importance of the application of reason in the religious theology and practice. They presented a rationalist understanding of Islamic religion and theology and did not think that application of human mental faculties to the Islamic pronouncement of the natural phenomena, social organizations, and God himself was a contradiction in terms. In due course, and through the interaction of Hindu and Muslim thinkers, Religious thought anchored in rationality became part of her own intellectual tradition in the subcontinent. Such an outlook has been part of her history and tradition. And only a broadening of her conception of reason, which acknowledges both its instrumental power and its role in the achievement of an ethical vision, will allow us to proceed with unembarrassed confidence into an increasingly modern world without fear of loss of our moral values. This for us Indians is a matter of real pride and joy that we inherit an intellectual tradition which blended in right proportions the utility of rationality with the objects of morality and spirituality. One was not achieved at the expense of the other. When we look around us today, we realize that people all over the world, particularly in the Western world, are experiencing a crisis 
in their daily social lives. This is certainly the result of the excesses which they committed in their wholehearted endorsement of unbridled rationality combined with undiluted materialistic outlook on life. There is no doubt that scientific materialist way of thinking has made tremendous impact on human lives. Morality and spirituality. One was not achieved at the expense of the other. When we look around us today, we realize that people all over the world, particularly in the Western world, are experiencing a crisis in their daily social lives. This is a certainly the result of the excesses which they committed in their wholehearted endorsement of unbridled rationality combined with undiluted materialistic outlook on life. There is no doubt that scientific materialist way of thinking has made tremendous impact on human lives and all over the world and that humanity has indeed benefited immensely from it and should certainly continue to be guided and benefited from it. However, it seems that man in the process of realizing his potential in the scientific technological field exceeded the bonds of responsibility and caused irresponsible, irreparable damage to his own self, to family life, to community, to nature and environment. The need of the hour is to reassess our material development under a new paradigm of progress, a paradigm in which our development is defined and anchored within a set of certain moral and social values. Man has indeed always felt the need of interacting and harmonizing his endeavors with certain transcendental ideas, values, and entities. It was this urge to proceed along with these values which had, which had in the past made possible for human material achievements to be in harmony with his environment. Swami Vivekananda taught us the way of life which combines science, religion, and humanism. There can be no science, he said, without the recognition of the cosmic mystery. Today, again, we desperately need to consider these transcendental values, of course, in the light of modern-day circumstances, and relocate human economic, political, and social goals within a broader realm of values and ethics. We simultaneously need to cultivate a culture of mind which will rescue us from the fragile, the mean, the shoddy, the ugly, untoward, the rigid, and the dogmatic. Some of these aspects we are addressing today in this presentation. Reason to get back to our central point in our daily lives is embodied in education. Education is what trains us in thinking about objectives and ends drastically. It takes us out of the cave of darkness into the sunlight of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Education is incomplete if it is not endowed with special cultural values and a cultural purpose. Zoroaster puts it thus, the true education teaches one to make the enemy into a friend, to make the wicked man into a righteous man, to make the illiterate into a learned man. Education also helps us to think systematically about the best way to attain the objectives and ends we deem to be the most rational. This brings me to the point I have been building up to, the value of education. The education system in our country today is in a sorry state. Over the years, the universities, like so many other institutions in our country, 
have become the custodians of present of the status quo. I will not talk about the many burning questions facing the educational system today, the slow but a steady tapering off of state funding, the rapid and disquieting decline in standards, the unresolved issue of primary education versus higher education, etc. Our universities must adapt to the changing world in a positive and creative manner. They have to explore alternative and indeed novel ways of doing things. This in turn requires them to make an all-out push to raise the standards. Today, the competition between nations is moving from the realm of international politics to that of international economics. This new battle will be won and lost in the classrooms and laboratories. Any nation, any community that does not realize this is doomed to a future of subservience and marginality. In the same context, it is significant to remember that on every opportunity we get, we reiterate that our children are the key to our future. All parents want their children to advance in life and see their own success in the advancement of the children. However, few parents have enough confidence in the ability of the children to give them the opportunity to chart their own course of life. Most parents try to influence the life choices of their children and attempt to channel their intellect and energies on predetermined lines of their own choosing. Community leaders are just as guilty as parents in this respect. We must not stifle our children, but rather allow them to breathe freely. They should not be reduced to the position of mere robots. It is the free spirit of a rational man that can interact with environment, penetrate its secrets, and mold it to suit his needs and desires. The moment we give our children the freedom and faith in themselves, we give them a purpose in life, and disorders subsidize. subside. Freedom of thinking confers upon them the right to think big and to become men of virtue and ability. Believers in peace, in harmony, and strivers after society in which, in the words of Gurudev, the, held, the head is held high and the mind is without fear, where the world is not broken up into fragments by narrow domestic walls. We must realize that a society that does not allow its children to think independently and rationally and dream a better future is doomed to stagnation and frustration. Today, when our country is passing through a crisis, the only demand that one can make on all educated men is to use their education, their skill, and their wisdom for the purpose of integrating society and not disintegrating it. This is the concept of dharma which we believe in. Dharma is that which brings people together. Adharma is that which separates people, disintegrates them, makes them fall asunder, makes them turn against one another with hatred. That is something which we have to repudiate with a life guided by knowledge and inspired by love. Thus, the attributes that are essential to a good society are clear. The challenge before society is to harmonize them. For each attribute, important as it is, should not be pushed to the extreme of fundamentalism. That way, there will be disruption of the civil society. That civil society is a good society, which is able to find a proper balance among these different attributes of good life, which I have described above. Concluding my presentation, I would say that we as a nation have every reason to believe that we are very much capable of realizing the ideals of the good society, which I have just talked about. Our history, our civilization, is witness to this. 
That is the history of the civilization which was made together by our people, belonging to various religions, sects, cultures, and languages, being at ease with the belief systems and worldviews based on reason and rationality, and working in harmony with one another to achieve material well-being of all and lifting up the most disadvantaged to a position of respectability, making India what she was and what a destiny has marked her to be. This was and remains a joint enterprise. India can regain its poise and position befitting its civilization this with the contribution of people belonging to all sections of its society. This will be the biggest asset in our becoming a strong, united, stable, and a confident nation. Realizing the dream of that great leader whose memory we are so proud to celebrate today. We must work together with the ideals which we have talked about so that truth and love may prevail in the affairs of men and we keep the torch of Indian civilization burning. Thank you. I now request the Director General of All India Radio, Sri Shashi Kant Kapoor, to propose a vote of thanks. Director General Shri Kapoor. Abid Zainsab, may I, on behalf of All India Radio, thank you very much for having delivered this year's Patel Memorial Lecture. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for having responded to our invitation by being here this evening. Thank you. Thank you, sir. With this, we come to the conclusion of this evening's program, the Sardar Patel Memorial Lecture, 1994.